Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tane. This morning, Ukraine's new ambassador calls on New Zealand to do more in the fight against Russia. Delighted to welcome, and my president would be happy to see Prime Minister of New Zealand come and visit him and visit Ukraine, uh, because I think that would send a very strong message of solidarity and support. Then, Chris Finlayson on his political career, the future of the Ngāpui settlement and the ongoing debate over co-governance. And I would hope that David Seymour would be able to make his points, which sometimes are very good points, without being labelled a racist. And a week of scandal with junior MPs in the Beehive. Yes, we will get into the Sam Uffindel Gaurav Sharma stuff. We actually thought it'd be a good week to bring back the famous Q&A panel. But first, Ukraine's ambassador to New Zealand has asked us to provide more military hardware to his country in its bloody war with Russia. On Wednesday, Ambassador Vassil Moroshnichenko formally presented his credentials to Governor-General Dame Cindy Kiro before going on to meet with Defence Minister Penny Hienare and Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta. Ambassador Moroshnichenko only recently returned to Australasia after touring some of the worst-hit regions of Ukraine in which Russian forces have been accused of committing war crimes. But when Russia first invaded, he was in Kyiv with his family, and I asked him about that experience. Uh, Kyiv is a city of four million people, so everybody was trying to leave, and there was uh, traffic jams all over, no uh, petrol available. We fled to my hometown, which is about 350 kilometers southwest of Kyiv. Uh, then my, my family asked me to, to get them out of the country, uh, because it was really, my kids get traumatized, and you would get this sirens all the time, that bomb alerts uh, coming. So I took them out to Romania, which was the closest border to my hometown. And they stayed there for over three weeks in Bucharest. I got appointed as an ambassador in mid-March, and uh, I was able to leave Romania at the end of March and come to, to Australia. Got accredited on the 1st of April, and, and now here in August, mm -hmm. I got also accre got accreditation to New Zealand. I presented my credentials to a Governor General uh, this week. You have returned to Ukraine twice since March this year. In your most recent visit, you visited Bucha and, and Irpin, where some of the worst atrocities of this war occurred. How was that experience? Oh, look, that, that was heartbreaking. Though I've read about this, though I've actually talked to media about this atrocities and what Russians have uh, done there, all the war crimes and the torture and executions of people. But being there with the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, was actually a different experience for me and, and, and also for him. Uh, for him, he's been able to see the witness accounts and hear witness accounts of people. Imagine a butcher, a small suburban town outside of Kyiv. There were 462 people executed there just because they were Ukrainians. And that we were at a church, an Orthodox church there, and there was a place where over 200 people were just buried in, in, the, in the ground there. Mm. And the Prime Minister could go there and, and, and hear those stories. And then we went to Irpin and we saw all the destruction uh, of the houses blown up and, um, and hit by missiles. For me, as a Ukrainian, I also being close to, to my people and just see it also with my own eyes, smelling it and, and feeling it. Uh, but definitely for the top uh, political leadership of Australia in that case, we would be delighted to welcome 
and my president would be happy to see Prime Minister of New Zealand come and visit him and visit Ukraine, uh, because I think that would send a very strong message of solidarity and support. Yeah, tell me a bit more about that. Why, why is it important to you that Jacinda Ardern goes to Ukraine? Look, uh, it's um, our allies, and, and New Zealand is our ally for sure in this war, uh, have been coming to Ukraine. And we've, you've seen probably um, many world leaders travel there. We've had uh, Prime Minister of Britain, Boris Johnson. He traveled to Kiev actually three times, mm. uh, twice during the war. And, uh, and we've had Macron, uh, President of uh, France, uh, the, 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 the Prime Minister of, uh, of Germany, and all other global leaders traveling. Even the President of Indonesia mm. went there for the first time in history. Uh, our outreach to Indo-Pacific uh, is, is moving forward. So that would be very important for Ukraine uh, to get this support from New Zealand, uh, given the reputation of New Zealand globally, given the strong voice of your Prime Minister Jacinda uh, globally, the, her reputation, uh, her influence, and also your influence here in the, in the Pacific region with all the Pacific Island nations. What else do you want from New Zealand? Look, the, we outnumbered, we outgunned. Every day Ukraine is losing 100 people, another 400 get wounded. The hostilities are, are enormous. We don't have the weapons Russians have. Uh, they use uh, cluster bombs, they use supersonic bombs, they use thermobaric bombs. This is the most destructive weapons out there. Uh, there is no safe place in Ukraine. Uh, we need ammunition, we need artillery guns, we need jets, we need tanks. Of course, New Zealand does not have all of this, but whatever you have and whatever you can give, uh, we'd be very thankful for that. Any art light artillery, any light armored um, uh, vehicles, uh, you know, armored personnel vehicles, um, that, that would be really helpful because we need that to transport our personnel to the front lines to get them back. Um, and and that this is, if you have anything of that, we'd really be thankful for that. But also reconstruction of the country in the long run. And there are two stages of that reconstruction. There is fast recovery and there is long-term reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Fast recovery is a rebuild of uh, schools and hospitals and, some, and the utilities, like water providers and, and electricity suppliers. This is the minimum things which needs to happen in the cities which were destroyed, because we have five million people who fled the country, who are now outside of the country. So pretty much the whole population of New Zealand uh, kind of is now outside of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we have another 10 million who are internally displaced. So actually to provide opportunities for some of the families to come back to Ukraine with kids, though it's still not safe in many parts of Ukraine, they need to have schools and hospitals at least, because if there's no school, there's no point of coming back, right? So this is where New Zealand could help. And that could help, I mean, on a government level, on a, on a corporate level, on a private level, uh, on municipality level, regional level, because I think it's so important to, to help you. And by the way, in this respect, what we could do, and this is something that President Zelensky has been encouraging many countries to do, to adopt certain regions in Ukraine for reconstruction and adopt, I mean, it's actually uh, in a way to help. Like, for instance, UK is now uh, helping the Kyiv region with rebuild. Uh, Denmark is helping Mykolaiv in the th south. Uh, also, Portugal is helping Zhytomyr region. So different regions of Ukraine were kind of adopted by different countries. So maybe I could pitch an ANZAC uh, kind of adoption and, and, and like Australia and New Zealand could go together. And my suggestion is to pick a maritime region. And by the way, uh, Mykolaiv is a good one for them. It's in the Black Sea. 
and uh, with an ambition to actually expand to Kherson. Kherson is still under the Russian occupation and a lot will need to be uh, rebuilt there once we repel the Russians out there. And I, I think it would be a great um, uh, New Zealand-Australian uh, support coming to Mykolaiv and uh, Kherson both maritime regions of Ukraine, rebuilt of ports, rebuilt of schools and hospitals, and I'd be happy to facilitate that. You mentioned two things there in terms of military hardware, uh, artillery and light armoured vehicles. I know that you've met with New Zealand's Defence Minister, so did you tell our Defence Minister that you hope New Zealand might be able to provide those two things? Look, we, I had a very good meeting with the Minister of Defence, the Minister of Foreign Affairs yesterday. Uh, I, I was very warm and uh, we discussed um, uh, different topics and I was able to thank for all the support that, that came. Of course I mentioned uh, that whatever else could be provided, including uh, the artillery, including light armoured vehicles. I understand some of them are not in a good condition to be provided, but anyways, I still, it still requires, any of these decisions require the cabinet meeting. So there has to be a cabinet meeting where they have all to uh, raise this topic and discuss it. But of what, course, what did they say? Did they, did they? Look, um, I understand it, 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 it's, it's, it's been noted uh, and they understand that Ukraine needs. Uh, and, you know, I, I was really, let me just tell you one story, which I think which was really heartbreaking to me. And yesterday when I uh, met uh, uh, your foreign minister, um, and uh, Mahuta, and she, she, you know, she did this prayer for for, for the dead people of Ukraine, and in in Maori language, mm -hmm. and uh, I was really moved by that. And uh, and actually, it's interesting that that New Zealand has to look at Ukraine from a standpoint of its indigenous foreign policy. And actually, given that both your defense minister and minister of foreign affairs are indigenous people of New Zealand, I think you don't realize that. Your policy on Ukraine is also part of this indigenous foreign policy. And let me explain. Uh, in Crimea, the peninsula which was grabbed by, by Russia when Russia invaded eight years ago, we have Crimean terrorists, and they are indigenous people of Ukraine. And they, they are Muslim, and we have 400,000 of those. In 1944, Joseph Stalin forcefully deported those people to Central Asia. Many of them died on their way. They could only come back when Ukraine became independent in 1991. Mm -hmm. So Ukraine welcomed those uh, Crimean terrorists to Ukraine. But also we have Krimchaks and Karaims. So these are, you know, there is one Jewish group there in Crimea and another Muslim group there. Uh, you know, indigenous people. And now they, they, are, they pledged allegiance to Ukraine. They were able to come back only because independent Ukraine welcomed them back. And now these people are under heavy persecution uh, by Russians. Many of the activists were abducted, killed, murdered. Many of them are in, in Russian jails as political prisoners. So I think it's so important for New Zealand to show that support to Crimea. And by the way, President Zelensky is now will be hosting an online conference called Crimea Platform Conference one day before Ukraine's independence. It will be on the 23rd of, of August, and we have sent out invitations, and President has sent out invitations to global leaders uh, everywhere, including in New Zealand and Australia and some of the Pacific Islands as well, because it's so important to demonstrate that, that Crimea is Ukraine, because these indigenous people in Ukraine are suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important for the countries for, which, for whom indigenous uh, domestic and foreign policy matters to, to demonstrate that solidarity and support. New Zealand's largest trading partner is China. Of course, shortly before the invasion, China signed a no-limits deal with Russia. Should the invasion change the way that New Zealand considers its relationship with China? 
Look, uh, Ukraine has good relationship with, with China. And um, China has recently made a statement that they, they are neutral on this. They have good relationship with Russia. They have good relationship with Ukraine. We've been trading a lot. My argument is that it's not in the interest of China to, for Russia to continue invading Ukraine. Mm. Because as a result of this invasion, the commodity prices have surged. Mm. China is the largest importer of commodities globally, of natural resources, of mm. food, uh, of, of, of energy as well. And, and, and now China has to pay much more for that. Mm. And they definitely know that that's uh, the cost they have to pay for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Perhaps temporarily it may look like beneficial to them from a geopolitical standpoint of view, but long term is actually to the detriment of the Chinese people. Mm -hmm. Because I think Chinese leadership cares more about its people than the Russian leadership does. Mm -hmm. Because Russian leadership does not care about its people. They want to get them killed in Ukraine as much as they can as to deliver the mission. But I think for China, which has grown, which economy, which economy grown for the past 20 years, yeah. and so many people get out of poverty, it's important for the Chinese leadership to maintain that um, quality of life in China. And given your good relationship with China, I think it would be good, and I encouraged uh, the politicians I met yesterday, to help us built a direct uh, bridge uh, to China because President Zelensky, he recently spoke actually at the Australian National University that was in a video address just last week and, and he got this question on China. He, he is looking for a direct meeting with Xi Jinping and of course uh, given your good relationship with China perhaps you could, you could help us and we could leverage that relationship uh, and uh, we could get that meeting. I know the war has entered a stage where there are significant losses on both sides. Winter is coming. Will Ukraine be prepared to cede any territory permanently to Russia if it means ending this war? No. And the answer is very simple, because this war is not about the territory. It's not the territory that Russia wants. Russia wants to get a ceasefire to be able to resupply, regroup, and mount another attack. You have to understand that this is not a land that they want. They want to squash Ukraine. They want to take over Ukraine. That's the mission which Russia is pursuing. Mm -hmm. So it's not uh, actually in a position of anybody in Ukraine to cede any territory. And the president of Ukraine has actually mentioned that many times, mm -hmm. and the Ukrainian people would not accept it. And not that we uh, could sacrifice the land, because it's not about the land. But also, like, uh, to give you an example, it's like, for instance, um, um, somebody invades New Zealand and, and, and they ask you to seat your Northern Ireland for peace. How would you feel about that? Not very good. Not very good. No. That's, that's what we feel. That's what we feel. It's not, it's, uh, you invade us, you come, you rape us, and you say, look, you know, we're going to live in your house here, you know, raping your wife once in a while, but we'll have peace. We won't kill you. Will you accept it? I mean, that's, this is something we have to go through. But again, as I said, it's, it's not about the land. It's, it's, it's about their ability to resupply, regroup, and mount another attack on Ukraine. So we can't allow that to happen. We need heavy weapons, uh, long-range missiles, to repel the Russians from Ukraine. And of course, every war ends with a peace deal. But once we repel the Russians from Ukraine, including Crimea, this is when we can sign a peace deal and get the security guarantees. Maybe the only way how we can get a security guarantee is by joining NATO, because NATO is the only security guarantee we can have, because all those we've had is Russia, Russia has violated. You know, Ukraine gave up its largest nuclear arsenal in 1994. 
And would Russia invade us if we had nuclear weapons? No, but we gave them up. That is Ukrainian Ambassador Vasil Moroshnichenko. After the break on Q&A, former Attorney General Chris Finlayson spills the tea. The colleagues he respected, the colleagues he didn't. And the Prime Minister, he reckons, is still way too underrated. Kia ora we welcome back to Q&A. Chris Finlayson was a unique politician. As the former Attorney General, Treaty Negotiations Minister and Minister in charge of the GCSB and SIS spy agencies, he was in charge of arguably some of the trickier ministerial responsibilities as part of John Key's government. Finlayson left politics in 2019 after more than 13 years as an MP, but he has reflected on his time, his achievements and his colleagues in his new book, Yes, Minister. I sat down with Chris Finlayson for a wide-ranging conversation at his home in Wellington. In the book, you record a few political regrets. One is that you're not a better self-promoter. Another is that you don't emote enough. So this is an opportunity to improve on both of those fronts. Well, bad luck, I'm not going to. It's just <laughs> not, an, it's not my style. But uh, you'd never get me uh, on the front page of Women's Weekly, so forget it. <laughs> One thing that's clear from the book is that you were attracted to politics by the doing rather than the being. You were attracted by the things you might achieve and the things you might change rather than the office itself. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I was never really interested in a political career as such. I actually believe in term limits. After about 15 years, you should be tossed out for at least three years. If you want to come back, well, more fool you. So I had a pretty firm idea of uh, what I wanted to do, and thanks to the generosity of John Key, I got my chance. And the other thing was that I didn't have to serve in a variety of portfolios. Mm -hmm. I was attorney and minister for treaty negotiations for nine years, culture for six, and then I had the spooks for a couple of years. Why were the treaty settlements so important to you? I'd grown up with this sort of uh, work uh, since I got to know Tepany O'Regan in the early 1990s. I've been involved in the first round of the great debate over fisheries allocation, did a lot of work for Naitahu uh, and for other iwi and uh, really got to like and know the people and want to work with them. So to be able to do that job over an extended period was um, a real opportunity to do something positive. As part of your legal career, had you taken a particular interest in the role the treaty plays in New Zealand society? Absolutely not. In fact, I say in the book, um, I studied constitutional law in 1976 and we spent more time discussing the role of the Governor-General given that the previous year Gough Whitlam had been fired by uh, Kerr rather than even talking about the treaty. In fact, the Treaty of Waitangi wasn't mentioned once. What do you make of that phrase, treaties are never settled, they're merely honoured? Oh, I think that's entirely correct. And so I was always saying to civil servants, and it's been very interesting in my post-political life seeing it, that it's all very well to give the lacrimose speeches in the House and feel good when you're signing treaty settlements, but the proof of a treaty settlement is what happens in five years' time. And I really do worry, and I've seen evidence of this, that the, the institutional state, as opposed to the political state, often forgets and then the problems arise again. So what will it take to get the Ngāpui settlement done? I think 
probably trying to hold them as one is going to prove to be too difficult and probably it would need to be broken up into uh, regions, say about four big settlements up there, because I don't think after all the work that's been done by both national and labour administrations uh, that it's going to be possible to keep them together. As Minister, you were responsible for negotiating co-governance arrangements around natural resources as part of that treaty settlement process. Did you face hostility or opposition from within the National Party? No, I remember very clearly the day I stood up in caucus and said to the team that I'd be announcing the, uh, the Tuhoi settlement. There were a few surprised faces, but I think everyone was delighted uh, that Tuhoi had settled because there was such a wrong, everyone knew there was a wrong up there. Even Winston, I think, was asked about it. He said, well, I hope they've got enough, because everyone, everyone knows that they were dealt a pretty rude hand uh, and that something decent needed to happen. On other co-governance arrangements, well, I developed a, a set of guidelines with the former Minister of Local Government, Rodney Hyde, and that sort of provided a principled way of looking at the different types of co-governance arrangements and generally they seem to work. If you want to have uh, a more general debate about co-governance, then I think that's quite appropriate and I would hope that David Seymour would be able to make his points, which sometimes are very good points, without being labelled a racist, because he's not a racist, but he's entitled, uh, as an opposition member of parliament, to challenge the government on this stuff without being you know, treated to the epithet racist. It's been an interesting debate so far. We've spoken to David Seymour about it, we've spoken to Willie Jackson about it. Willie Jackson said to us that democracy has changed, essentially in New Zealand, with an eye to the treaty, we need to consider democracy in a broader, more nuanced way than simply one person, one vote. What do you think about that? Oh, I think democracy is changing. And so I said to you when I was studying public law in 1976, no mention of the treaty. Now the treaty's seeping into so much. So nothing stays the same and we've got a very flexible constitution. Uh, and so change will come upon us and we have to accept that. I mean, future generations of New Zealanders are going to be looking at whether, whether or not we retain the monarchy. Uh, there are a lot of people who say hopefully not. If Prince Charles is accepting money from bin Laden's family. Uh, and so, you know, there are these sorts of issues that are going to come up. And the key thing, in my view, is that we try and debate the issues in a civilised way and avoid just hurling slogans at one another. As part of the book, you consistently return to the importance of the rule of law. Do you worry about a system in which the checks and balances are provided by the Attorney General, a political appointee, who might have to act directly in opposition to their political interests? No, I don't, and I think our system does work well. The Solicitor General is a non-political appointment, unlike in England, uh, but the Attorney General has generally, there have been a few exceptions, uh, always been in Cabinet to ensure that the business of government is conducted in accordance with the rule of law. And so you have to have someone who knows politics uh, but is also prepared as a law officer to say to his or her colleagues, you can't do that 
because it will breach the Bill of Rights or it'll offend some other principle of law. And that's what's been done, I think, pretty well on a bipartisan basis through national and Labour attorneys. That's in New Zealand, but is that consistent in other countries as well? No, I think the greatest threat to the world economy uh, and to liberal democracies is lack of respect for the rule of law. And so what we're seeing is the breakdown of the rule of law in the United States, uh, the, you know, the greatest republic. Um, we've seen serious problems with the rule of law in the United Kingdom under Boris Johnson. We just have to be vigilant about it all the time. In the Pacific Islands, there are issues about the rule of law. Uh, so it's very easy to see that breakdown. So people uh, have to be very firm about maintaining respect for the rule of law. And by that, I don't say the rule of judges uh, or the rule of lawyers, because one of the disappointments I've found since coming back to the law is that mercantilization of the legal system uh, and the, the fact that so many people cannot afford to get access to justice. It's a, it's a serious problem. Too many delays, too expensive, too much paper, too complex, and someone's going to need to address those issues. You lead the revamp into the security services to be much more legally focused. Why should the public have confidence that the spy agencies are acting lawfully? because I think they've learnt the hard way. Um, they made a number of errors during the time that we were in office and we were very, very unhappy with them after the GCSB uh, mistakes in 2013 and the SIS have made plenty of mistakes. We've reformed the law. We've, we gave them a lot more money and the current government has continued down that path. Mm. Uh, and the checks and balances in there with the Inspector General, the Commissioner of Warrants, the Parliamentary Committee, which could be beefed up, mm. I think they're all there providing adequate supervision of the agencies. But there is no doubt at all that they've got a huge job to do. And one of the regrets I have from the GCSB debate in 2013 uh, is the level of invective that was hurled against the government when we were trying to, to do things properly. Uh, we had people like Dame Anne Salmond saying she'd never be able to commemorate Anzac Day anymore because we were going to be indulging in mass surveillance and rubbish like that. Though that kind of hyperbole was totally unnecessary and I would say that it stopped us to, uh, talking about reforming other areas like the terrorism legislation. Dame Anne Salmon and her little cohort of friends did an enormous disservice to the state in 2013. You said in the book that you regretted the way you approached the marriage equality debate and that your no vote put you alongside people whose views you thought were, quote, frankly repellent. So what would you do differently with the benefit of hindsight? Nothing. I think I was right. I think that our matrimonial laws generally are confused. We've got um, legislation dealing with civil unions, we've got the Marriage Act, we've got uh, de facto relationships mm. where people choose not to get married. Um, I personally think that marriage does not need to be regulated by the state, and so I would remove the state from marriage, mm -hmm. uh, and, well, you'd civil unionise everyone, I suppose. You'd recognise the contract, but leave the 
if you like, the symbolic side to others. So there is no need for the state to regulate marriage. And indeed, that was the position in England until a couple of hundred years ago. And people said to me, oh, that's a sort of a quirky, libertarian view of things. But I think that's the next, uh, the next step. I want to throw a few different names at you. Hmm. Names that appear in the book. Begin with Robert Muldoon. Well, I loathed him. Um, I joined the National Party of Jack Marshall. Uh, and Jack Marshall was my local MP. He always said he was a liberal, I don't think he was really, but he was a gentleman, and I don't think that the approach of Robert Muldoon to issues was the way that politics should be conducted. It was sort of brutal, uh, populist, and populism is one of the great problems in the world today, and by the end of uh, his time as Prime Minister, I reviled him. John Key? Uh, on the other hand, John Key <laughs> was one of the great Prime Ministers. One of the reasons I've written uh, this book and also the book on treaty settlements is because he was such a damn good leader and Prime Minister and very generous to me in terms of support on, on various matters. Uh, and I don't think uh, enough people who were involved in the government between 2008 and 2017 have written about the government and frankly the, the good work that was done. Um, I know the current government's fond of saying it alone has faced crises such as no one else has ever faced. We came into office with the GFC crisis, we had Pike River, we had the Christchurch earthquakes, John Key was there showing magnificent leadership throughout and it sounds as though I'm a little toady but it's not meant to be, it's <laughs> I genuinely admire the guy and that's why I've wanted to say something uh, about the achievements of his government uh, between 2008 and 2017. Paula Bennett. Yeah, I've got no particular problem with, with Paula, and I'm, I'm, she's a very good ga game show host on the programme. What is it? I haven't got a clue or Give whatever. Give us a clue. Give us a clue. Uh, but I, I think that uh, looking back now, a better deputy for the Times would have been uh, Anne Tolley, who I thought was a fantastic uh, minister and parliamentary colleague. She did so many jobs and did them well. She's now trying to sort out Tauranga. Um, I think she would have been a much safer pair of hands. And certainly it's fair to say I wasn't impressed with the uh, leadership of Simon and Paula. I think they were the wrong combination uh, for a government that had been in office a long time. Looking back now, uh, it perhaps should have been Stephen Joyce for a period to settle the show down because I don't think he would have uh, tolerated the kind of nonsense that occurred between 2017 and 2020. You finished the book on a hopeful note for your party, noting the, the competence and good leadership in your eyes of Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis. You say this can only result in better candidates and better quality MPs at the next election. What do you think of the Sam Uffendale scandal? Well, I think it will, because I know some of the people who are thinking about standing for Parliament and they are superlative. What do I think about the current scandal? I feel very sorry for Christopher Luxon, who I think is a very good leader, uh, and it shows the importance of making sure the leader knows everything. And the sensible thing that Morris Williamson and I were chatting about today, the, the sensible thing would have been for the board 
to have gone to the leader and said, well, we've got a number of candidates for selection. There's this guy, uh, good credentials, great background, but you've got to know that when he was a kid, he did X, and uh, when he was a student at Otago, he did Y, so that the, uh, the leader knows those things. And people may say the leader does not want to be bothered with all this detail, but I think that uh, Mr Luxon was let down there by the board. I think, from what I understand, the disclosure was made, the inquiries were then followed up on, but the link with the leader was lacking. So that's a lesson for the future. Because in a by-election, um, where all the focus is on the candidates, you just can't afford slip-ups. It's a zero-risk strategy. How do you think it will end? Well, I've thought about that when I think about Mallard and Henare having a scrap in the lobby, and that was a real fisticuff fight. Mm. And I think about some of the others who have stood for Parliament and their pasts aren't perfect. I hope for the new MP's sake that he can come through this, um, and that uh, what I call maybe his oafish past will be seen as the past so that he can concentrate on, on knuckling down for the future. But how will it end? I just don't know. Do you miss politics? No, I've, I'm pleased I was there because I always thought that I'd go the sort of barrister route onto the court. Mm -hmm. And um, Brash was very supportive of me when I decided to stand. But I'm really pleased to be out of it. Uh, because it's just a different world now, a different set of issues. And what I do in the, in the book is not set down particular ideas that I'd like to see achieved, apart from reform of Maori land law, um, where I was, I failed. Uh, but I, th I still think that's a major job that needs to be done. But I'm pleased I'm out of it, because you cannot stay in that place too long. Otherwise, you become institutionalised and useless. That is Chris Finlayson. His new book is Yes, Minister. And good news, it is available to purchase this week. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Next, both National and Labour are dealt a harsh reminder of how quickly positive headlines can flip, especially when junior MPs and allegations of bullying are involved. Hoki Mai, welcome back. It has been a hell of a week in the Beehive. Sam Uffendell, who was only elected in the Tauranga by-election a few weeks ago, has been publicly revealed to have a history of bullying, assault and antisocial behaviour as a teenager. Gaurav Sharma publicly accused MPs in his own party of bullying and then was accused of bullying himself. And Anna Lork was accused by a former staffer of bullying as well. We thought, yes, you know what, with all of this, not only is it hard to keep up, it might just be a time for a panel. So, NZME's Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan, and lawyer and National Party member, Liam here. Kia ora kōrua. welcome to the programme. Kia ora. I think, um, let's do things um, as they played out this week. So we'll start out with um, Sam Uffendell. I have one question. Why was he selected in the first place? And Liam, I know you um, give a lot of attention to the National Party selection process. Why was Sam Uffendell chosen? I mean, well, the short answer is that he was elected by the, um, by the delegates of the Tauranga electorate. He was elected on the first ballot. Um, but if your question is why was he elected on, despite 
um, you know, the, the past that he's publicly admitted to? Well, the answer is there is that um, that wasn't known to the, to the delegates, right? So it was Sam Wolfendell, he, he did everything right as far as he could. He disclosed it to the board. The pre-selection um, uh, committee knew about it, um, but they put him through anyway um, on an unqualified basis. He was one of um, uh, four candidates or nominees for candidacy, and he was the one who was selected. So whether or not the candidates, whether or not the delegates would have chosen him had they known about it, I, I don't know, but mm. it seems a lot less likely. Um, so I guess what it comes down to is um, that the, uh, the actual party administration, the, the administrative parts of the party, uh, it didn't see it as being an issue um, and perhaps didn't foresee that it was inevitably going to come out. See, this, that just seems remarkable to me, given this is a by-election, so there is additional scrutiny on the candidates, given National's recent history with badly behaving men and junior MPs. It just seems extraordinary to me that they would select anyone or approve of anyone who wasn't 100% squeaky clean. But what responsibility does Uffendell bear in all of this? Well, I, I guess the only thing I can say about that is... You know, uh, none of us would like our 16-year-old selves to be held up to scrutiny, right? Yeah. But you know going into a public career that this type of thing is eventually going to come out. You know that the trend in recent years has been towards looking into past behaviour, holding people in power to account for things in a way that wasn't the case in the years gone by. That's all foreseeable. Mm. And I guess the problem that I've got, well, the thing that I've got is just to, to what extent does personal ambition outweigh the, the concern for the greater good for the party and the common good for the country. And you might think, look, if I've got that in my past and I'm a small government person and I actually don't um, think that government is the end all or be all and this is something that's in my past and might come out, maybe I'd do something else for a career. But in all of these problematic MPs the National Party has had, it's always been the case that it seems that the personal ambition has outweighed that commitment to the common good. Mm. And, 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 I, and I don't know for sure, but it just feels to me like it's another one of those cases. Fran, am I wrong to focus on that selection? No, and I think, I think it is an issue, but to me, when I saw the uh, four uh, prospective candidates for the uh, national selection... The four Sam Uffendells? Yeah, yeah. The f well, you know, be a bit careful there, but yeah. four people who look quite similar, Ooh, yeah. I do get the point. They were white, they were men, they were early, middle-aged uh, or young. Um, I, did, I did feel, where is a woman in this? Where is a Māori in this? Uh, this is a, you know, a party that is, is pretty linear and vanilla in its um, presentation in Parliament. And that was an opportunity to show in that electorate that they'd read the room and, you know, went for someone uh, who was diverse, and they didn't do that. I mean, Sam Uffendall's career... Uh, essentially, it was middle manager. I know mean, it's been played up as vice president, but, you know, banks and elsewhere have lots of vice presidents. It's not a major role. Uh, so, um, you know, the why, and he was lauded by um, uh, Christopher Luxon on his um, mm. nomination and selection by the uh, voters. But I think the point about... I think people are entitled to have stuff in their past that is embarrassing that they wouldn't do with, mm. you know, retrospectively 20 years on. Time if they'd to be... grow, yeah, they? yeah, yeah. And I do think what has been interesting to me watching the commentary through the week is not so much the political commentary, but a lot of the commentary at large where people have talked about how they were bullied at school, how they were had become, you know, suicidal. Mm. And I do think King's has why didn't they actually get him to apologise and atone back in the day? You know, I mean, they should've, that shouldn't be happening, you know, 
20 odd years, 25 years on, when the guy is contemplating a political career. It should have happened earlier, in mm. my view. What should happen now, do you think, Liam? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the National Party will not want to have another by-election. There are no really good options. Um, look, he, at the end of the day, he's elected by the people of Tauranga to represent them. He's got another year, I suppose, to try and convince them of his good character, um, the, the man that he is now instead of the man he was as a teenager. Um, and, uh, you know, if he does a, a good job, I suppose he could overcome it. But I think the likelier option at this point is that he sees out the rest of his term um, in penitence, I suppose, or mm. doing the best that he can and, and then doesn't put his hand up for, for re-election. What do you think of Christopher Luxon's position in all of this, Fran? It was interesting yeah. to hear Chris Finlayson saying he was essentially let down by the board because they didn't inform him about Sam Affendale's past. Yeah, and I think the question to me is what would he have done if he had been informed? Would he have said, um, oh, I can't take the risk of this uh, coming out in public? Or would he have said, as he has said, post-fact, that um, he would have, um, you know, got him to mm. Sam to say something in public to kind of fess up that, you know, when he was young, he had this black spot, um, you know, he'd, he'd addressed it, he'd got on to build a career, he was a family man, all of that. But to acknowledge uh, what had occurred and to have said this made him more empathetic towards other people who had had, had issues. And, but the whole nature mm. of his maiden speech and everything else was quite contrary to that. So mm. very difficult for Christopher Luxon because he's now also got the suspension, um, mm. you know, which he has put in place from caucus, and, you know, which kind of damns the guy, frankly, uh, in my view, because, you know, this is happening while a... Um, investigation takes uh, place into things that happened in uh, mm. Otago University, allegedly. Uh, well, Otago University is, you know, it's kind of a scarfy town, people, it's, it's kind of almost a badge of honour for bad behaviour during university years. You know, they set fire to couches, they... Yeah, I mean, it's just a very different um, game again. So, um, but however, that is the one thing yeah. which enables Christopher Luxon more time to yeah. decide what should happen. Well, I, there might have been a bit more pressure over the last couple mm. of days if mm. the Sam Uffendale story had continued to dominate the headlines, but of course it didn't. Mm. What do you make of the Gaurav Sharma situation, Liam? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the, um, the allegations and the counter-allegations have been uh, pretty specific. Um, I have to say that I've actually been kind of... Um, and I'm not just saying this in any sort of trolling sense, but I'm kind of been disappointed with how the Labour Party has handled it. You had the Prime Minister um, you know, sort of go out there and say, oh, look, I can't comment on it, and then partially making a comment to infer that he's a terrible manager of people, and then to say, right, well, we need to put all this, we're putting support around him, sort of giving this inference that he's on the sort of verge of a breakdown or something like mm. that. Mm. And then at the same time, you have the surrogates of the Labour Party out there feeding lines to the media about this guy being an oddball or a weirdo. Mm -hmm. I mean, as if oddballs and weirdos, you know, weren't, couldn't be targets of bullying, you know, mm. which is the opposite is, is true. Um, it's, it's been genuinely uh, pretty disappointing for me. I mean, it does take the... Um, the, the, some of the heat off national a little bit, I suppose, if you're thinking about it in the, like, those crude terms. Um, but, it, it, like, again, it points again and again to the problems that we have, not just as a, in our political culture, but in our culture across the board, mm. where we're not good at handling these things and that, you know, we sort of use people as means to an end rather than as an end unto themselves. Yeah. yeah, like you say, it's important to note that the various allegations are disputed by all parties and actually you sort of need a PhD to be able to wade through them all and digest them at the moment. But what have you made of it, Fran, and what should happen now? 
Um, well, I think to me there's two issues that need to uh, be resolved. One, he said he's been starved of resource, um, and he said that in his Facebook uh, post. And he has a job. He's an elected member. He has a job to do, and he mm. needs that resource. He did say that he didn't. Uh, he is now allowed to advertise for a manager, you know, someone to work in his office after he took a lawyer in and met uh, with the whips and others. He has also made an allegation of. Um, and, you know, he's named people, he's named the whips but, and others who've been whips, but he's mm. also made an allegation of misuse of parliamentary funds. That needs to be looked into. That's a serious claim. He doesn't name names, but he said it was an MP and a staffer. So there are two things sitting out there, one being starved of resource and, you know, the other point about, um, you know, potentially uh, a misuse. And that needs to be cleared up. It's not good enough for a sitting MP uh, to be in that a position where these things aren't taken seriously and argues he's been bullied back. That said, some of the language um, is very loose. Um, he had talked about feeling depressed, suicidal, and so when the Prime Minister talked about how they were concerned for the well-being of him, mm. I don't think it was entirely gaslighting because he himself had um, indicated, you know, that he had an issue. But that said, you know, this is an endemic issue around Parliament. We've had an inquiry um, mm. in the past. We've had recommendations to be made, um, you know, to, to sort out the culture of Parliament. So something there needs, needs to happen, in my view. Yeah. Am I drawing too tenuous a link to say that given both of these incidents concern new MPs and given, well, junior MPs, and given there have been issues with relatively junior MPs in the not-too-recent past, that perhaps there needs to be a cross-party approach to the ways in which new candidates are selected and the ways that new candidates are prepared for the role? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, can I just... To one thing from that interview with Christopher Finlayson, which was mm. really good, was mm. that he talked about, you know, we've got these, um, the National Party, he knows these people are really superlative, you know, picks, you know. And I actually kind of disagree with that a little bit. I think there's so much focus in politics now on personal ambition and people who have these impeccable credentials, they're excellent people. Mm. And I actually just think we need to, the parties need to have a better focus on not getting excellent candidates, but getting people of good character as candidates. We're meant to be a House of Representatives. We don't need to have people pushing up their CVs or, you know, and I actually just think that it's like we have character problems in our politics and that the, the, the solution is getting people of good character in politics. Yeah, that is a really nice note. Uh, I would end there, except I know, Fran, you have a bouquet you <laughs> want to throw out this week, because if we consider the, um, the self-inflicted uppercuts of the last few weeks, you've had the Labour Party, the National Party, arguably the Greens over the selection process. That leaves two parties in Parliament, the Party Māori, which only has two MPs, and ACT, mm. which if you'd said in 2020, <laughs> is the ACT caucus going to show superlative discipline? I don't think many people would have necessarily picked it. Yeah, and, and actually I do. I, I, you know, but, but also from the point of view of discipline, but also through staying on message for mm. saying the things that National doesn't say, which National in its heart knows it should be saying around various policies. Um, yeah, and, and they deserve. I mean, he has melded and wielded together a formidable team, David mm -hmm. Seymour, so I would give him you, a bouquet. You've jinxed him now. Oh, sorry. We'll be playing this in oh, no. three days' time or something. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Liam here and Fran O'Sullivan. <laughs> Coming up on Q&A, everyone running for local body elections has now officially declared their candidacy. So after the break, we are in Maitirotorua to meet a remarkable field competing for the city's top job.
Kia ora, welcome back. Nominations for local body elections closed on Friday and over the next few weeks we're going to bring you some of the candidates running for office in regional Aotearoa. We are starting today in Mighty Rotorua where Fena Owen found a diverse group of characters vying to lead the city. It's been a rocky ride for our iconic tourist town. Last year, Mayor Steve Chadwick announced after nine years at the helm, she'd be stepping aside. Former Deputy Leader of New Zealand First, Fletcher Tabato, was the first to announce he was after the job. Some of our community leaders, uh, iwi and business leaders came to me and asked me to run for Mayor. And I would never have thought about it unless I'd been approached and asked to do this um, and so they've they said to me we need your skill set in in Rotorua as the mayor we need your leadership and the experience that you bring. Tabato is Rotorua born and bred I'm a Te Arawa boy so. and confident he's going to pull this off. I think I'm, I'm definitely out in front. This is one of my favourite places to come in Rotorua the the redwoods for local lawyer Ben Sanford, this stroll really is just a walk in the park. Not so long ago, he was doing this. Nothing, just look at the form. The Olympian is also on the World Anti-Doping Committee and has just returned from Birmingham to campaign for Mayor of Rotorua. Oh, and he stood for Labour for Rotorua in the last election, losing out to Todd McClay. My background in sport too has you know, taught me a lot about building teams, you know, working together. Uh, to, to achieve goals and aims and I think that's what we need from a council, like we need the mayor uh, to be someone who can bring the council together, um, you know the mayor isn't the president, the, you know they're there as one person on council and they really need to be able to build consensus. We have three caves here yep. and Down it here. is, yes, yes under three there. caves, <laughs> some glowworms yeah. and it's said that um, Hinamoa was hiding there hiding right here. On her lakeside property, we meet another mayoral candidate, New Yorker, but long-time Rotorua resident, Ananda. She's based here, but works on international movie sets as a makeup artist to the stars. The mayor has to have courage, conviction, leadership, and leadership is vision. And I have a vision, very different from what's been happening. At the city lakeside, locals are enjoying the boardwalk, a new asset for the city. Beautiful, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous, yeah, but, I mean, you want to walk up Fenton Street or walk through town, you're going to get harassed either way you go. And it's just because there's so many homeless. We hear a lot of talk about the people in the motels being vulnerable. Everyone in Rotorua is now vulnerable. That's what's been created by the actions um, down Fenton Street, where there are 24 motels that have emergency housing, 24. On Fenton Street, we've tagged along with another mayoral candidate who's done two terms on council. G'day, brother. My name's Raj Kumar. I'm standing for mayor of Rotorua. And I would love to join you for a drink, but maybe at a more civil time. What's your name? Tahoe. Tahoe. What have you been up to, Tahoe? No, just hanging around town. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you, are you from, are you from Arotorua or are you from Arotorua? Fakatane. You're from Fakatane? Yeah. But you're living here? Yeah. Motels? Yeah. How's it going? Not bad. It's shit. This is a shit way to bring your kids up. This dad and his family say they've been living in motels around Rotorua for five years. They just throw us over here and then they don't want to hear about us. You're just a funding number? Yeah. 
to right there. It's not good living. It's not. Me and Mama says one out of here. This is a rot, and this rot is the stench of the whole country. So we got to stop this. There should be a better solution for this, not just to bring people, dump them over here, tick the boxes. Yeah. We're here to help, man. And if I become mayor of the city, I'll make sure that there's a better pathway, you know, for everything. I, I must say, I'll tell you, it's re really affecting being here. It's, it's dismal. Look, I didn't want to show Rotorua in a bad light, but this is the reality of what the situation is. Tiarawa local Tanya Tapsil has been on council for nine years and is considered one of the front runners for Rotorua's top job. Last general election, she stood for national in the East Coast seat but lost to Kitty Allen. Thought we'll give that a go. Didn't work out, but fortunately, I've still been here as a councillor doing some good work for Rotorua. This is a woman who has been involved with politics since she was 14 and on the Youth Council. What are you essentially campaigning on? Yeah, so I'm standing to ensure a better Rotorua for all. My priorities to enable that is first of all actually providing a safe community. Emergency housing is one aspect, but we do have one of the highest crime rates in the country, but we're still a great place to live, so we need to tackle the crime. The second one's actually on stop the spending, which that review will do. And thirdly, we do have to invest, but we need to do it wisely. It's Thursday morning and while the city councillors are in a meeting, one councillor isn't. That's Reynold McPherson. He's barred, but he's still giving the mayoralty a shot. Don't take this the wrong way, Reynold, but um, every council, most councils seem to have a stirrer or an agitator. And I've heard that in Rotorua, you're it. Unless you get whistleblowers and stirrers, you don't get any change. Reynold McPherson is campaigning on a ticket and reckons he's got a lot of support. Our residents and ratepayers are adamantly opposed to our forms of co-governance. They just don't like it. The current council has helped create a homeless industry. It's fed by people... you're on the current council? Correct. And I'm powerless to stop it at the moment. But if I'm elected mayor and I'm supported by a majority on council, we will go back to MSD and say, no, we're going to dismantle this entire industry so that we can get back to being a tourist town. Voter turnout for Rotorua Lakes District Council elections is slightly higher than the national average. And with nominations now closed, candidates will be ramping up their campaigns to court those voters. Fair Owen in Rotorua. Stick around, Q&A is back after the break. Komatu. That is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching. And now mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey, tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.